0: Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your pro- on your program uh, this Monday, the twenty sixth of June, we have a yarn with uh, Diane Ware, board chair of the Sydney Film Festival, talking about the festival's recent announcement. It supports Indigenous voice to Parliament. We also have a story shared with us by NITV's The Point program with the point co-hosts continuing their referendum trip around the country, stopping in Perth last week where they sat down with Nolan Hunter, head of, of engagement at the Uluru Dialogue, and other guests to talk about Indigenous voice to Parliament. And from ASPS's newsroom, we have a story about new developments in New South Wales where the state government wants to make it easier for pet owners to be able to keep their animals in rental properties and more coming to you after the latest news. Bertrand Tungandame here. I am Bertrand Tungandame.
3: Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal
4: embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended.
5: And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came.
4: I am sorry.
0: Within Jowen traditional owners urge non-Indigenous Australians to support their call for self-determination and voice and vote yes to Indigenous voice to Parliament. Anthony Albanese pays tribute to the passing of Simon Crane. And new data reveals workers at minimum wage can barely survive due to the rising costs of living. Traditional owners in the Catherine region of the Northern Territory have urged non-Indigenous Australians to support their call for self-determination and vote yes for the Indigenous voice to Parliament. About 4,000 attendees have travelled to the small Aboriginal community of Barunga with a population of about 360 people to celebrate the Barunga Festival. This year marks 35 years since the Baranga statement calling for the recognition of Aboriginal rights was handed to the then Prime Minister Bob Hawke at the Baranga Festival. Mr Hawke pledged at the time to have a treaty created between Aboriginal people and the Australian government by 1990, a promise that remains unfulfilled. The Minister for Indigenous Australians, Nindabani, on Friday was handed the Baranga voice declaration which calls on the nation to vote yes in the upcoming voice referendum. The chairperson of the Jawan Association, Lisa Mambin, says the new declaration invites all Australians to listen to the aspirations of traditional owners.
5: This place belonged to us Aboriginal people, the First Nation people. And we need to be acknowledged and recognised now. It is time, and no disrespect to anybody, but to you, non-Indigenous people, we need your support, because together we can thrive. We can thrive, we can heal, and we can make this nation strong
0: community organizations hosting events in support of an indigenous voice to parliament will have access to a freshly launched fund to help cover costs. This is part of an effort to shift the voice debate away from politicians and into communities after federal parliament passed legislation to allow a referendum to take place. The Yes23 campaign will provide one-off grants of up to $15,000 to encourage further engagement and conversations about the importance of a successful referendum. It is hoped the grants will assist regional and rural community groups to run Yes activities and forums. Indigenous community organisations have also been encouraged to apply for financial assistance. Yes, 23 campaign director Dean Parkin said hundreds of community events supporting a year's vote had already been held and the fund would support even more conversations across Australia. The Australian Labor Party is mourning the death of Simon Crane at the age of 74. Simon Crean had served as a member of parliament for 23 years and was a cabinet minister in the garments of Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. Simon Crean's family said they were devastated after his death on Sunday morning following an exercise session in Berlin in Germany where he was part of an industry delegation. Mr. Crane will be remembered as one of the architects of the whole government's momentous industrial relations reforms of the 1980s and one of the most significant political figures of modern labour. Prime Minister Tony Albanese reminisces about Simon Crane. Well,
5: Simon, uh, of course, uh, had some ups and downs in politics, as we all did, but uh, he showed no signs of anything resembling regret. Uh, He is someone who uh, continued to make a, a positive and constructive contribution.
0: The rising cost of living is still in the spotlight with new figures from Anglicare Australia showing that full-time minimum wage workers have only fifty-seven dollars left after essential weekly expenses. The study called living cost analysis shows housing is the biggest living cost for households. Anglicare Australia Executive Director Casey Chambers says this concerns essential workers.
6: These are people who've done everything we've asked them to do, they're working full time, they're in the kind of occupations that actually stood at the forefront when we were in the pandemic. They're retail workers, they're food delivery workers, they're delivery drivers, they're security workers and yet still they're going backward. Rents have gone up by 30 percent since 2020 uh, and we know of course that rent is the largest part of people's weekly costs.
0: The index also pointed out that a family of four with two full-time minimum wage workers would be left with only $73 after expenses and that a single parent would be short of $100 to afford even essentials. Former New South Wales Liberal MP Darren Maguire has been charged with giving false and misleading evidence to a corruption inquiry involving a Sydney council. The charge stems from his testimony given during Operation Dasha, which investigated whether former councillors dishonestly exercised their official functions over planning proposals and applications. The news comes days before the state's corruption watchdog releases its findings into a major inquiry into the former Wagga Wagga MP and ex-Premier Gladys Berejiklian, who were in a secret relationship. The long-delayed report will be delivered on Thursday, more than a year and a half after Ms Berejiklian quit as Premier. The federal government has announced a new proposal to give the communications and media authority ACMA stronger powers. Social media companies could face multi-million dollar fines for failing to address the spread of misinformation and disinformation. The proposed changes allow ACMA to obtain information and documents on how the corporations deal with such situations. Failure to respond can lead to penalties of almost $7 million or 5% of the global turnover in case of systemic breaches of standards. Jenny Davies, Australian National University Associate Professor, says the measure is a consequence of the New Times.
7: The reality is that many of us are getting our news from social media sources, be it Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, etc. And at some point, these companies that have so much power and
6: so much money have to be responsible for what's shared on their platforms.
0: The opposition have raised concerns these measures could restrict freedom of speech. Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong says Australia is working with its global allies and keeping an eye on Russia following extraordinary scenes involving the Wagner private military company. Senator Wong also says Australians in Russia should leave immediately because the security situation could deteriorate further. Australia's travel advice for Russia is to not travel and the government has warned its ability to provide consular help in the country is limited and it would be able to facilitate evacuations. Late on Saturday, the heavily armed Russian mercenaries who were on their way to Moscow after threatening President Vladimir Putin and his top his top defence brass began turning back. In Greece, Lisa party leader Alex Tsipras acknowledged defeat in the second parliamentary election this year. The Conservative New Democracy Party stormed to victory yesterday with voters giving its leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis another four-year term as prime minister. According to figures from the Interior Ministry, with 91% of votes counted, centre-right New Democracy was leading with 40.5% of the vote and 158 seats in the 300-seat parliament. It was more than 20 points clear of Syriza, a radical leftist party which won elections in 2015 at the peak of a debilitating debt crisis and which ran the country until 2019 when it lost to New Democracy. A party called the Spartans and considered far-right has won over 4% of the vote and is likely securing 13 seats. Once there is a candidate in Athens, Omeros Polakis, is concerned by this development.
4: It is clear that the voters' choices have taken a right, even far-right, turn, and I'm afraid that this will also affect the policies at a social, parliamentary and political level.
0: Back home fire crews have managed to prevent a wildfire from spreading to nearby properties in rural Queensland. A watch and act warning was issued by the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services on Sunday afternoon, but was later downgraded to advice. No more properties are considered at risk. There's still a large amount of smoke in the area and some roads have been closed. Two swollen private dams are being closely monitored in South Australia after the state has experienced extremely heavy rains in recent days. State Emergency Services has issued flood and watch warnings on Sunday for two dams in the Adelaide Hills. Residents have been warned to only leave their houses if they are sure the path out is safe and clear, as there is a high risk of the dam breaching at any time. And to sport in NRL, the Raiders have held off a late reaction from the Roosters, winning 2018 at Sydney Football Stadium. With 18 points in the first half, the Raiders opened up an 18-0 lead but let the Roosters Back, but but let the roosters, the roosters back into the game in the beginning of the second half. Jared Crocker secured the win for the Tricolours after scoring on a penalty kick. Roosters coach Trent Robinson says his team could have used some opportunities better.
8: We you know we had enough time to to run it down, and I feel like we were creating some opportunities, but we couldn't finish them off. You know we
0: obviously just couldn't sort of ice enough opportunities to get back in front and now having a look at the weather around the country broome cloudy 28 perth partly cloudy 15 adelaide showers and 16 melbourne a shower of 2 and 15 Hobart, similar conditions, 13. Albury, Wodonga, cloudy, 11. Canberra, a shower, 2 and windy, 11 degrees. Wollongong, mostly sunny, 18. Sydney, much the same, 19. Newcastle, sunny and windy, 20. Brisbane, mostly sunny, 24. Townsville, partly cloudy, 27. Cairns, partly cloudy, 29. Alice Springs, partly cloudy, 24. Darwin, mostly sunny, 32. And the Torres Strait Islands, mostly cloudy, there ahead and the top of 29 degrees. That is NITV Radio News.
9: NITV Radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at one PM or any time online.
0: And this is coming to you on NITV Radio with me, your host this Monday afternoon, Bertrand Tunandami, and coming to you from NAM on the Kulin Nation. Coming up next in your program, the Point co hosts sat down last week with Nolan Hunter, head of engagement at the Uluru Dialogue and other guests in Perth, to talk about Indigenous voice to Parliament. You also have a story from HBS's newsroom, a story about uh, new developments in New South Wales, where the state government wants to make it easier for pet owners to be able to keep their pets in rental properties. But first, the senior Festival. Sydney Film Festival prides itself for amplifying the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and recently the event has gone a step further expressing its support for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. NITV radio Sierra Shredder caught up with the Sydney Film Festival board chair to learn more about this support. <laughs>
1: The Sydney Film Festival has recently expressed its support for the Indigenous voice to Parliament in a statement released ahead of its 70th anniversary festival. The festival has a long-standing commitment to amplifying the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and believes in the constitutional recognition for Indigenous people. I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by Deanne Ware, the board chair of the Sydney Film Festival, to discuss further. First of all, thank you for joining us today on NITV Radio, Deanne, and congratulations on a successful Sydney Film Festival. 2023. Could you, you provide your own perspective on the significance of Indigenous storytelling in today's film landscape and the potential impact and influence it can have?
7: Oh, look, I think in the Australian context, our First Nations filmmakers and storytellers are absolutely kicking it out of the park. I mean, they, in recent years, Some of the most significant films and the most significant television that's been made in Australia has actually been First Nations storytelling. And I think that's really exciting because I think it's storytelling that allows us to develop empathy. It allows us to sort of walk in the shoes of other people. And that's why representation on screen and behind screen is, is just so important because unless we're telling everybody's stories you know we're not telling the stories of of our community and unless we have people behind the camera who are bringing their own lived experience and their own perspective to those stories then we're really only seeing half of the story so you know I think through just the sheer talent of many of our First Nations storytellers and also Support from Screen Australia, you know, the Screen Australia First Nations Department is in fact our programming partner at Sydney Film Festival and there's been an amazing program of work through Screen Australia over the last 30 years really to help both develop and elevate First Nations storytellers and we at the Sydney Film Festival have been uh, the beneficiary of that because we have had some of our most incredible First Nations creatives telling stories that have been a, a critical part of the festival program. From your
1: experience, why do you think storytelling through film can effectively break down these barriers and build bridges between different communities and cultivating a sense of unity and reconciliation?
7: Well, because I think for a lot of you know European Australians um, or, or Australians from a non-First Nations background... They may not have relationships with First Nations people or they may not realize that they do. They may not really understand what the perspective of First Nations people is and what their experience has been. And sitting in the dark, watching a big screen, seeing those stories play out, there's such an emotional connection that can be created through film. Um, and as I say, it's that element of really for two hours, you're sitting there and, and walking in the shoes uh, perhaps of that person. And it all of society, it's just really important that we're able to see the diversity of the experiences and create those emotional connections. And uh, I think that's a really important role for us to play at the festival, to sort of bring those films to people and for us to create those sorts of emotional connections, and to see all of us as, as human and understand each other's, uh, each other's perspectives. And that's sort of what the, the melting pot of a festival does. You know, I mean, this year I've seen, um, you know, our opening night film, Warwick Thornton's beautiful, beautiful f- film called The New Boy, which is really about the connection between culture and spirituality, and even with what might have seemed as the best of intentions, you know, you can destroy culture in such easy ways, and it, it is a, it, that is a beautiful film. But you know, I've, so I've seen that. I've seen a film from Yemen. I've seen the film from Kashmir. I've, you know, I'm seeing a lens into people that I would never have an opportunity to do otherwise. And it is it makes you think, it makes you question, and it leads you off into having conversations that perhaps reading a book or a newspaper article just simply doesn't give you that same connection and that same emotional resonance as what a, a beautiful film up on the, the big screen can do for you.
1: Sydney Film Festival emphasised recently the importance of constitutional recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. With this recent and ongoing support, how does the constitutional recognition have the potential to enhance First Nations storytelling?
7: Well, I mean, I think we, you know, we we try to listen. As a, as a festival, It's it's in our DNA, I think, to listen to diverse voices and try and encourage dialogue. And so the statement from the heart was a very clearly articulated request to Australia from First Nations Australians and and a broad and as Rachel Perkins told us on opening night of our festival, over 85% of First Nations Australians support a voice. So if, if they support a voice and they're asking us to vote yes at the referendum, then I think as a festival, we wanted to say that we believe this is an important next step on the reconciliation path. And as the Uluru Statement asks us, it says, voice, treaty, truth. We want to um, help encourage that because listening, having a voice means listening to the people who are impacted by the policies and legislation that are being contemplated. And you can't have good policy, you can't have good legislation unless there is an opportunity for the people most affected by it to speak directly. To the policymakers and the legislators to say this is our view it's not there's no veto power it's not binding but first nations australians who are saying that they want to have a say about matters that actually and legislation and policies that impact them it's just very logical to me
1: well what specific aspects or actions do you believe like film festivals or the film industry in that matter employ to effectively contribute to these types of dialogues surrounding Indigenous representation and rights?
7: Well, I think um, what a film festival does is provide a, a platform for those voices to be heard and to be heard in a way that I think is a little bit different to things just appearing on television, for example. And for a lot of, you know, first time voices, you know, we've got um, we have thirteen key First Nations stories as part of the festival this year from Australia and around the world. And one of the you know the great opportunities, of course that a film festival also provides is because a film festival brings together, filmmakers and audiences. And so if we can also bring First Nations filmmakers from around the world together and share their own perspective, there's actually something very powerful in that. And then having an audience sit together, you know, 2,000 people sitting in the state theatre on our opening night, watching Warwick's film, The New Boy, was a very, Powerful experience, and you know, I've been talking to people about it ever since. Audience, mem- you know, people who were in the audience that night have been coming up to me and chatting about that film and about what that film made them think and what that film made them feel. They then go off and talk to other people about that. I think there is something very powerful about that shared experience within a cinema that a film festival provides that allows people to actually go off and have conversations that they may not have if they were just sitting at home and, and watching television. And, of course, because the filmmakers are there in the room, sharing that experience as well, um, and then the talks that we have, you know, it is, it's a real opportunity for dialogue. And I think that's why festivals are very important for all filmmakers, but I think it's also a fantastic opportunity for First Nations filmmakers as
1: well. So with your passion and commitment to gender equality, do you believe there is an intersection between the Indigenous Voice to Parliament and gender equality that impacts the representation of Indigenous women specifically within the storytelling landscape?
7: Well, you know, absolutely. I mean, so many, again, it's the sort of paternalistic approach of policy making in the Australian environment over the last 200 years is honestly something that has in many ways impacted all women, but more particularly so First Nations women who, you know, the voice will allow those women who are, front and centre of many of the issues faced by their communities that some of these pol- the policy and legislation attempts to deal with. I mean, how can you have a conversation about those policies without speaking to the women in the communities that are impacted by that. And that formal mechanism of the voice will be really powerful and give some of those women their voice. And filmmakers, you know, in some of the most, you know, incredible First Nations filmmakers that we have, like Rachel Perkins and Erica Glynn and Leah Purcell, you know, they are telling stories of their aunties, their own, not just their stories, but stories of their community. You know, I've been very passionate about... Female voices and female representation on screen, because we have had a significant tradition uh, up until recent years in this country of not presenting the diversity of female experience on screen, and a lot of that has been because women have been excluded from full participation in the industry. And there's a lot of initiatives that you know I've been involved in that have been about trying to improve that situation and it's to me it is it's you can't be what you can't see and you so many of our inherent biases are driven by the kind of cultural diet that we receive and screen stories really are the most pervasive cultural influence of our time if you think about we are watching screens every day whether it's a big screen or a small screen we are seeing video imagery that is telling us who a leader is is telling us the roles that different people play within our community. And if they are only coming from one perspective, then what hope do we have for our children and for all of us to sort of perceive and empathize with somebody uh, in, a, in in their full humanity? And it just, is, I know it sounds rather grand, but it is quite, it's so important to me because it is you. if all you think of is a woman in a limited number of roles, that gets, if that's all you ever see on screen, that, re- that reinforces, that kind of becomes part of your DNA and your understanding. And that's what we have to change. We have such a beautifully complex society with so many different people from so many different cultures. We need to get to know those people. We need to understand who they are as people. And once we understand who we all are as people, it makes it really hard, much, much harder to then have ingrained, you know, biases against people because you just see them as a thing. Like, you, you, once you can understand someone as a, a real human being, you have a much greater opportunity to walk down the path together with them as opposed to just seeing them as the other kind of person.
1: And lastly, looking ahead, what are your hopes and aspirations for the future of Sydney Film Festival and its role in supporting diverse storytelling and social
7: impact? Well, look, you know, I think what's been so exciting about um, this year's festival so far is that the, you know, the cinemas have been full, the crowds are big. It feels to me like we're sort of in that, we are now in a post-COVID world, if you like, where we're sort of getting back to a new normal and people are so excited to be back in the cinema having that shared experience. What we want to do with the festival is to continue to ensure that we are representing diverse voices. So, you know, we'll continue working with the First Nations Department at Screen Australia. We'll continue doing our best to bring the best international filmmakers, including First Nations filmmakers, to Sydney for our festival and to bring their, their stories to our audiences. We want to make sure that we're keeping the festival as accessible as possible, you know, and, and that's something as simple as trying to keep ticket prices at a reasonable Rate, but you know, because our uh, ticket sales are only about 30%, only cover about 30% of the cost of the festival, we need to keep on bringing in. you know, corporate sponsorship and private philanthropy and the support, you know, we have wonderful support from the New South Wales government, City of Sydney and our other city partners. So we we just want to make sure that we continue to be accessible in multiple ways. And also, I think that, you know, we are a film festival, but we're also very cognizant of the different types of storytelling that are occurring. So we'll keep trying to support some experimentation in form. We're very focused on trying to support short films as well as The longer form features. We are screening some showcases of some television episodes. You know, we're wanting to keep the conversation going, um, and we're doing something. Even you know, this weekend we have a program called Platform, where we've brought together some diverse filmmakers. They're, They're getting together. They're being partnered with people that they haven't even met, and they're coming up with projects, and then they're going to pitch them to an audience on Saturday afternoon. It's those sorts of things where we're trying to continue to support conversation and experimentation about how stories are told and who tells them awesome. that's very much in our DNA we will kind of keep on doing that and hopefully keep on growing our audience and people who participate in the festival.
1: Deanne thank you very much for taking your time to speak with us today on NITV radio. My pleasure thanks so
9: much. NITV radio on radio online and mobile.
0: You just heard there, Diane, we Sydney Film Festival Chair Board talking to NITV Radio's Sierra Shredder. Time for a break and a truck by Jessica Mowboy. And when we come back, well, with the point we explore Indigenous voice to Parliament from Perth.
9: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
0: And our story brought to us by an ITV's The Point Program uh, with uh, last week's uh, Stop in Perth by uh, The Point co-hosts Narelde Jacobs and John Paul Janke where they sat down with the uh, leaders to discuss uh, Indigenous Voice to Parliament.
4: Kaliwa.
0: Yandu.
2: Kaya, i'm neralda jacobs and
4: i'm john Paul Janke. thanks for joining us on our referendum road trip
2: and a big thanks to joe collard for that beautiful welcome well jp i am thrilled to be back home on country Boraloo, perth with a fantastic panel and a big welcome to nyungar and Yamaji woman heidi Mippi, who has worked in community development for two decades including with the police and child protection
4: yeah and it's great to be joined by bardi and yaru man nolan hunter the head of engagement for the Uluru Dialogue Campaign and former CEO of the Kimberley Land Council. And by Wajak Yorgabilia, woman, and a tireless advocate, Marianne Headland mckay one of the founders of the Aboriginal Health and Wellbeing Centre, Moorditch Court. Did I say that right? Moorditch. Moorditch.
2: You did a Moorditch. Moorditch, actually. Yeah. Now, thanks to our Moorditch panel for joining us for this very important community discussion.
4: It's really great to be here. And great to have such a good panel for our discussion tonight.
2: Marion, I'm going to start with you. You've got a very strong connection to to culture and country. What's it like uh, being from the West and being from this country?
5: Oh, well, I had a deadly childhood growing up, you know, thanks to my dad and his family. He's got ten sisters. I had two mums plus all my nans, so... You know, growing up, we were always going swimming and fishing, you know, crabbing, marining, jugging, you know, for that freshwater shellfish. And it's because of Dad that I have that real strong um, passion, you know, for justice, Aboriginal rights, but also for culture and, and self-determination, you know. Mm. Heidi, mm. what about for you? Yeah, I think, well, WA is
8: home and it's probably the best state to live in, I think, in Australia. Um we're a big state and Noongar country is a big country, but I think growing up what was good is that everyone was around each other all the time, whether it be sport or out, mm. out in the bush or camping, fishing. Um, it's one big family in many ways, even though we have lots of Noongar families here. So it's a beautiful
2: place to have grown up and, and the, to raise children The Durbal Yerrigan mm. here plays the Swan River, plays a big part in, in our culture, doesn't it? Everything yeah. is kind of centred around the Durbal Yerrigan, the river. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah. And Nolan, your, your family and your country, of course, is a bit further north than
3: here. What was your experience growing up in the West? Oh, it's a fantastic place to grow up in. It's home and I'm a bit biased, but it's the wonderful place, I think. Um, look, the whole of the West is wonderful. Um, growing up in around the West Kimberley, up in Bardi country, uh, Broome and Derby did the Triangle. Uh, lot, you know, uh, outdoors, connected to country, doing all the things that make us who we are in our particular space, um, hunting, fishing, gathering, whatever it was. Um, so many adventures and so many wonderful memories yeah. as a child. Yes.
4: And, and how is that upbringing, that beautiful upbringing, by the sounds of it, actually informed the work that you do with community?
3: I think it, it, it centres me... Uh, it's important to understand what's important to me as an Aboriginal person, you know, our, our culture, our, our sense of belonging, our place. And the responsibility we have as indigenous people, we have as indigenous people to our country. And there's family and there's kinships and there's all the wonderful things that happen as part of that. But it's really important because it grounds us uh, in terms of who we are. I think it's really, uh, you know, without that, if you're uh, unfortunate not to have had that experience, uh, then you can go out in the world and do lots of things, but you'll always have that grounding mm. that will be really close to your heart. Yeah.
2: Heidi, how did you get into the, the community work that you do? I mean, you talked about your strong um, connection to, to, to country and culture. You were initially a police officer and you've also worked in child protection. How did you decide to go down that path and where are you now? Um, I, I guess what prompted me to go through to
8: policing was my work as a youth worker. So I was seeing kids be dealt with in ways that I didn't think were really good, um, excluded from spaces that they shouldn't be excluded from. And when I saw the ads for policing, I thought, well, if I go over there, I can be someone who can make a difference to that experience, to that exclusion, to the racial profiling. Um, And that's what inspired me to go into policing, actually. And it's probably also what inspired me to go through to child protection after I was working with child abuse for a long time, and I wanted to make a difference in a, in a friendly or familiar face to be able to interview children and help them through traumatic processes. Mm.
4: And you're also currently working with the Noongar Land Enterprise Group, and of course there's, a, there's updating of the cultural heritage laws here in WA. Um, especially following the, the Jook and Gorge uh, sort of tragedy, uh, what impact is the debate having on the community?
8: Yeah, I've been concerned in the last week or two with discussions that have been um, held in community, particularly in my workspace with Noongar Land Enterprise Group. We work quite strongly with farmers across the wheat belt and Yungar Country, and our relationships have been really good with them around access to their properties and to you know help with restoration and other projects, bringing in traditional knowledge. The amendments have created fear that the old native title or land land rights movement also created, you know, not so long ago where people are thinking now that they can't do activities on their farm. So I think the government really need to step up in terms of that communication out to the wheat belt and farmers. So they understand that like-for-like like activities will not be impacted and where there aren't cultural sites on properties that they're still able to do their farming. And, you know, farmers have had these farms for generations
2: and there's a lot of fear now around the security of, the, of their families and futures. We hear a lot about the Noongar settlement. Um, it's held up as, as the gold star of, of how to move forward with, with treaty and negotiations. Um, where do you see the referendum discussion sitting in, uh, alongside that? The Noongar Settlement's given
8: a baseline of where to start for opportunities for Noongar people, um, much like The Voice, so really we need everyone to step up and see that as a start and a foundation, but to actually look to strive for far greater things than what, it, what both of them set out to achieve.
5: Yeah, and I think that with the Noongar Settlement, um, the government have community thinking that that is the only way as Noongar people that we can go forward and, and get funding and things like that, and I think that... What we have going on in WA, we have so many issues where the settlement is not the saviour to all of that. People have to actually step up, government need to step up, and they also need to understand along with the heritage laws that it doesn't matter how much they amend them, the minister still has a final say. So we, as the sovereign people of this country, are never the last ones that have that final say, and I think that's one thing that needs to change. Yeah.
4: Noel, just quickly, do you think, though, that WA and other states in uh, Australia really need to value Indigenous cultural heritage the same that they do non-Indigenous cultural heritage? And that is the sort of the basic thing missing, that we don't judge it at the same level or honour it at the same
3: level? Look, absolutely. Um, you know, this uh, item on the agenda one of the most critical important issues if I talked about us culturally and what was important to us the grounding our connection all of those things big part of our culture our cultural heritage uh, you know 60,000 plus years now uh, scientifically um, that we've been here and when you can think about something being destroyed uh, in an instant without the ability to have the kind of say about protecting that um, that's what we're up against and it's super important because discussion's been going on across the country, we saw what happened in Jukan Gorge but there are many Jukan Gorges across the country that have gone on over the years and uh, you know we, we can't I get the level of protection around it.
4: Are you you worried, though, WA mob, that we're going back 30 years to the 90s campaign about land rights and native Mm. title and the Mabo decision, that that is all coming back through the cultural heritage laws, through the voice, through treaties, that we're going to go back 30 years to having those same old discussions? Are you worried about that? And if so, how do we actually move forward to have a good conversation about that?
5: Well, I think government needs to listen to us as the first peoples of this land. Because, you know, as you were saying, our mob have managed to sustain this land for tens of thousands of years. And within the short time they've been here, they've just totally destroyed it. And the impact of mining and how vast, and, ex- and, exp- and it's, so, it's expanding so much that I personally feel that our people are the last ones that have any say when we sustained this country longer than any culture right around the world. Mm. Mm.
3: Just make a point about cause and effect. The symptoms that we are dealing with on the ground across this country, continuously, around our social and socioeconomic circumstances, Mm -hmm. always being like this, has always been like this. And so we're dealing with symptoms, no matter what they be, whether it's around children, whether it's around Aboriginal people, deaths in custody, whether it's around protection of our heritage, around a whole range of things. So it's good to understand that History set the tone for us around all the things that didn't happen, and now if we look to that as understanding this is why we're calling to be heard, asking for a voice, you can see going back right in history that's been the case, and so it's about understanding that higher cause and effect.
0: And that was Nolan Hunter, head of engagement at the Uluru Dialogue, ending that episode. Uh, episode of the point hosted by Norella Jacobs and John Paul Junkie. Now, The Point airs on NITV on channel 34 on Tuesday nights at 8:30 p.m. If you want to listen to this episode again or any other episode of The Point, well they're all streamed on SBS on demand as well. Mm-hmm.
2: TV Radio, share our stories on Facebook.
5: I think really it's about you. How do you feel? It's important for you. This is your journey.
0: Welcome back. Uh, Now, moves are underway in New South Wales to make it easier for pet owners to keep their animals if they rent. There is concern that some people are being forced into homelessness because they cannot find a landlord willing to allow them to keep their animal companions. As Deborah Grock reports, the problem is not limited to just one state.
9: Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio.
6: Renting has become a fact of life for many. The Australian Bureau of Statistics says almost one-third of Australians rented their home in 2019-2020. Amid rising rents and strong competition for properties, potential tenants with pets are faced with additional tough choices. Bonnie Hawke says she found herself in that position a few years ago.
7: Yeah, we had to re Archie through a Dachshund rehoming organisation so that we could move somewhere else that would allow us to live there um,
6: without a pet. It's this kind of situation that some MPs are hoping will become less common in the future. New South Wales tenancy laws still allow for blanket no pets clauses in tenancy agreements so landlords can refuse requests to get a pet for any reason or no reason at all. Animal Justice Party MP Emma Hurst wants to see that change. This forces people to make an impossible choice to either accept housing or stay with their animals. Of course, anyone who chooses to leave an animal, the chance of that animal ending up in the overrun pound and shelter system is high, as is the chance that animal will be euthanised. Emma Hurst argues people are being forced into homelessness because they cannot find anywhere to live with their animal companions. She says it's time to improve the system. Such a system would promote animal welfare decrease homelessness and have major benefits to mental well-being. But the system is not set up like this. Unlike other states, our rental laws still allow landlords to ban animals, which severely limits the number of animal-friendly rentals on the market. The state's housing minister, Rose Jackson, says she's sympathetic to what Ms Hurst has to say. The minister says she has spoken to a number of people who have chosen to be homeless after finding it impossible to rent a property with their
9: pet. We know that pets are more than just a nice thing to have or a luxury. For a lot of people, particularly vulnerable people, who are experiencing housing insecurity and loneliness, they are an incredibly important companion. They are part of the family.
6: Rose Jackson says the New South Wales government is already working on changes to the existing laws.
9: We know it is too hard to secure... a affordable rental where you can have your pet. We have already announced, committed to, and are working on delivering reform to make it easier for people in rentals, in the private rental market, to have a pet.
6: Change has also been happening in other states and territories. Tasmania and Queensland have both recently made moves to make it harder to ban pets in rental properties, but landlords' permission is still needed. In Victoria, permission also has to be sought, but landlords need a good reason to say no, and animals that are classified as assistance dogs don't count as pets. Better Renting Executive Director Joel Dignam says tenants with animal companions still find it tough and making it easier is an important change to make.
10: It might seem like a small thing when people are dealing with so many other challenges in the renting space, like affordability, but pets are part of people's families. And one of the really sad things about a tight rental market is when people are forced to to lose their pets or are unable to, to keep a pet as part of their household. And it's something that can make quite a big difference for for just helping people to make a home as renters.
6: But Joel Deignam says a change in the law is only the first step. He says ending no-cause evictions would be the next logical move.
10: You might act on pets, but then if renters can get their tenancy terminated for no reason, then it doesn't really help much. If if you're allowed to get a pet, then the landlord can kick you out. So protections there don't only help with that, they help across the board. It's really important that they also cover fixed-term tenancies because that way tenants, these are the rights that, that New South Wales Labor is looking to grant, um, really important, but ending no-course terminations across the board would be really important to make those rights work in practice.
6: Deborah
9: Grok, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV
0: Radio. And this uh, brings us close to the end of today's programme, but before we part... <clears throat> I would just like to mention some of the programs and some of the stories that uh, we are working on in the coming days. You hear from a story about the Luija Awards 2023. The Luija Awards are designed to recognize students who have have or are finishing a master or PhD postgraduate degree within the nominated time frame. We also bring you stories leading up to NIDOC week 2023, which is just about a few days away. And this brings us to the end of today's program. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Bertrand Thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.